Welcome to Book Club, presented by Thunder Thighs and Lightning. Join us for our foray into podcast meets audiobook meets story time at the library meets my lifelong dream of reading out loud to people. For our first book club selection, we will be sharing the Harlequin romance novel, Country Proud, written by number one New York Times bestselling author, Linda Lale Miller. The TTL book club is a passion project of our podcast that we are doing simply for our love of pocket novels, and our opinions in no way represent the author, publisher, or the copywriter. Lucky you, for this book club, pants are not required. Chapter one. Sheriff Eli Garrett gazed out his office window at the gently falling snow and sighed. Christmas was over, although it seemed to him that the holiday would roll around again in approximately 15 minutes and another new year was just around the bend. Eli cupped his hands behind his head and leaned back in his chair, still watching the snow and hoping this little skiff wouldn't work itself up into a mega blizzard, burying some or all of wild horse country in plain misery. According to the weather app on his phone, it could happen. The meteorological jury was still out. If the storm materialized, he and his four deputies would be on the road round the clock, sorry, would be on round the clock duty, prowling the roads and highways for accidents and stranded motorists, checking on. Wait, he's a hot cop. He's a hot cop. Yay. Yeah, hot cop, right. And he has the name of somebody that I, I'm like, did I go to high school? Eli Garrett. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I went to high <laughs> That's school. That's a hot cop Eli name. Um, uh, prowling the roads and highways for accidents and stranded motorists, checking up on shut-ins and crotchety recluses, hauling drunks out of snowbanks, hopefully before hypothermia sets in. Us. I know. <laughs> like bar crawls, incidents of domestic violence rose over the holidays, given the preponderance of alcohol, but a few feet of the white stuff imprisoning people in their unhappy homes for an indefinite period would obviously exacerbate the problem. Same as most cops, Eli dreaded domestic violence calls above all others. No. Just jumping in. I'm his. He's got a heart. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm in love with Eli. His county was a relatively Don't peaceful one, but he'd serve in law. This is, this is. I read this out loud to Dave last night. The second that I read it, because it is just good writing. He'd served in law enforcement since he graduated from the academy in Phoenix, first as a deputy and finally a sheriff, and he'd seen some crazy ass shit. Yes, <laughs> I first love page. this book already. I know. Once, he'd spent upwards of 45 minutes standing in the weed-choked front yard of a rundown house trying to talk a methed-up ex-con holding a gun barrel to the underside of his own chin into surrendering the weapon. Eli had told the poor bastard everything would be okay, which was a lie, since he knew a woman and several children were trapped inside the house behind the man, and there was no telling what kind of shape they were in. This is like three paragraphs into this. We are off on the running. This is a, yes... Um, it's not how I expected this to start. No, I did not expect this to start this. The offender heavy. was a felon in possession of a firearm, which was five kinds of illegal, and there would be drug charges as well as assault and God knows what else. Hell, the most liberal judge in the state, never mind the county, would have sent this waste of space straight back to the pen, this time for good. Three strikes, you're out. Fact was, Eli would have said or done damn near anything to get the woman and those kids safely past that pistol-wielding maniac and into the ambulance waiting just out of shooting range. You don't have to do this, he'd said for the umpteenth time. Eli hadn't drawn his own weapon. A mistake, he supposed, since even a stoner could probably take it. <laughs> I'm sorry, that this guy shouldn't be called a stoner. <laughs> 
Sorry, I'm laughing so Stoner is just like not standing in the front yard holding a pistol to his face. He's like, ah, oh, sheriff's here again. Dude, the pizza rolls are gonna get cold. <laughs> Since even a stoner couldn't could probably take him down before he pulled his revolver out of the holster, but he hadn't wanted to ratchet up the tension, which already vibrated like a wire tightened to the breaking point. The two deputies backing him up were almost surely ready to shoot if the need arose. He'd taken a single step toward the man, hands dangling loosely at his sides, palms out. He was no grandstander, no hero, just a committed cop who wanted everybody involved to survive the episode. Think about your wife, he'd reasoned calmly, though he could feel sweat pooling between his shoulder blades. Think about your kids. You want them to see you blow your brains out? The man bellowed, maybe with rage, maybe with the pain of all he'd done to F up his own life. Sensing a stir behind him, figuring one or both of the deputies were about to make a move, Eli had growled, Stand down. Do not fire your weapon, your weapons. He hadn't taken his eyes off the suspect, and he saw a terrible rictus of a grin cross the other man's face, followed by a gruff laugh. What happened next was surreal. It seemed to take place in slow motion. The air turned to a thick, pulsating fog, and the ground felt spongy beneath Eli's feet, causing him to sway slightly. The shot echoed in all directions, and the dead man folded to the ground. Inside the house, the woman and the kids shrieked in horror. Oh, shit, Eli had murmured. Shit. The two deputies rushed past him toward the house. The ambulance parked up on the road until the shot was fired, sped down the driveway. Eli walked toward a nearby maple tree, stepped behind it, and lost his lunch. (laughs) The look on your face. Well, I'm just like, this is like really good writing. Like pause. the descriptors I know. are amazing. I'm, you know, to, to pause for a drink. Oh, okay. I'm taking I thought a you sip. wanted me to pause it. Um, no, but really, like I'm really impressed with how Absolutely. awesome this book is already. No, like, I, the, just, the writing is super, dis- this is why I said that it takes me a long time to read though. Yeah. Because I'm building out this, what kind of tree he was behind and like all this yes, stuff in my head. The descriptors in here are great. Um, again, welcome to book club. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) As it turned out, the woman had a pair of black eyes and a broken arm. The kids were thoroughly traumatized, but physically unharmed as far as he knew. After the state police arrived with their CSI team and the county coroner, Eli had returned to the sheriff's department, the very office he was sitting in now, to write up the required reports. This is a part I'm going to need everyone to really listen to. Then sheriff at the time... Dutch McCutcheon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Whose name I am fucking obsessed with. This is, I want a t-shirt. Dutch, and they also never, and at least in the first chapter, she never just calls him Dutch. She calls him Dutch McCutcheon every time. That is awesome. Um, Dutch McCutcheon had been out of town that day, taking his wife Clara for her first round of chemotherapy, so he'd missed the action. Oh, no, not uh, my, they have to make you love every character. I know, but Dutch... <laughs> Dutch McC- and Kara McCutch. Ah. Upon his return, Dutch McCutcheon made up for the lost time by re... What does this say? That's a typo. Upon his return... Sorry. Sorry, Linda. Upon his return, Dutch McCutcheon made up for lost time by reaming out his brain-dead idiot of a deputy for the better part of half an hour. When you approach an armed suspect he had raged, you'd... You have your weapon drawn and ready. You do not go into a situation like some freaking hotshot TV cowboy. You could have been killed. After the lecture, Dutch had bought Eli a drink over at Sully's Bar and Grill, told him to not come near the department until he'd been, one, debriefed by the appropriate state officials, and two, cleared by an officially sanctioned shrink. 
That's like a, this is like a real, very real though. This I know like what happens, and then you get isolated. They're like, okay, we're gonna. Well, then, but it's also just like in this really small town, so it's. I know, and I want to have a drink with Eli. Who is the appropriate state shrink in this town of like six people? Kristen Fix. It's oh, it's like Doc Hollywood. I always wanted oh like that movie Doc Hollywood to get stuck in a town and be the therapist there. Moving on. Eli smiled sadly, remembering Dutch. The old man had died of a heart attack 10 years ago, a month into his retirement, while fishing up at Flathead Lake. Deciding his thoughts had taken an unnecessarily grim turn, Eli lowered his hands, sat forward with a creak of the springs under his chair, and stood. Given some of the problems he'd faced, he reckoned a potential blizzard wasn't the worst thing that could happen in his county. Not by a long shot. Most likely the storm would fizzle out before it did and any real damage. Those weather people, in his opinion, were just given to drama. Just the same, Eli felt a little uneasy. His sister Sarah would say he was borrowing trouble. Dutch McCutcheon would have told him to pull his head out of his backside and be grateful for all the good things in life. Like his two best friends, who I'm now going to introduce you to, named Cord Hollister and J.P. McCall. Oh my god, this is exciting. (laughs) I'm sure, I think I went to high school with all of these guys, (laughs) by the way. And his job, which he loved about 80% of the time. He had a fair amount of money put away in savings and an inheritance from his and Sarah's paternal grandparents, and he owned his house and a few acres of land outright. Hot, sheriff, money, land. Stability. Cowboy. Maybe not emotionally, but at least. He had a good truck, too. God damn it. Paid for and still under warranty. Oh, God. That is hot. <laughs> <laughs> warranty? And oh. then and then we'll introduce the next character. And then there was Bryn Bailey, back home to stay. Bryn, his high school sweetheart, oh. the girl he'd essentially betrayed. Eli was thankful that she'd returned to the creek for sure. Never mind that she barely gave him the proverbial time of day. Probably still carried a torch for the man she'd left behind in Boston. But she was here now. In Painted Pony Creek, Montana, running her parents' popular restaurant and bar, Bailey's. Oh my god, can we put this on our road trip list? I want to go here. And and speaking of Bailey's, he'd agreed a little reluctantly to meet his friends there for coffee and a few rounds of good old-fashioned bullshit. I think that's whiskey. Bullshit? (laughs) No. uh, Eli would never drink on the job. I think they were just getting coffee. Just to chat. But when it said good old-fashioned rounds, I was like, of old fashions? Eli checked his watch. It was one of those jazzy Dick Tracy gizmos, a Christmas gift from Sarah and her kids, Eric and Haley. Oh. He's describing um, an Apple Watch, by the way. Oh. A text bounced. I pictured an actual Dick Tracy I know, so did I. Yeah, okay. But a text bounced off some satellite and came in for a landing with a ping, startling him a little. He wasn't all that big on modern technology. Sometimes wished he'd been born in the days of swinging saloon doors, dance hall girls, dusty streets and buckboards he shook his head amused same eli take your pants off <laughs> I'm just kidding. he was a seasoned officer he'd stood toe-to-toe with armed criminals not just that once but half a dozen times over the course of his career but this damn watch made him jumpy god only knew what it was up to behind that chunky square face communicating with aliens maybe or tracking his every move and reporting it to whom men in black the illuminati walmart it's true <laughs> amos edwards one of his deputies was big on conspiracy theories, and he'd taken a dim view of the device, claiming that they, whoever, quote-unquote, they might be, were using all forms of technology to spy on law-abiding citizens as they went about their daily lives, intimate moments included. 
Eli chuckled ruefully. Videos of his moments, intimate or otherwise, would be boring as hell. He swiped the tiny screen, screen to bring up the text. It was from Cord. JP and I are here. Are you on your way or somewhere out somewhere making Wild Horse County safe for democracy? He grinned, managed to access the tiny virtual keyboard, and bumble-fingered... Bumble-fingered? That's... That's, I, that's like a different image in my head. I know. I, and he, it, it <laughs> got it. I got it. Okay. He bumble-fingered out, be there in five minutes. At least that's what he intended to say. The actual message read as if it had been punched in by a chimpanzee. Cord and JP would just have to decode it for themselves. Bryn Bailey liked snow. Didn't mind driving in the stuff or shoveling the sidewalk in front of the cafe. In fact, it was romantic, especially around this time of year. By February, of course, she'd probably be whistling a different tune, longing for spring and mooning over seed catalogs and websites pitching tropical vacations. Yes. At a signal from Cord Hollister, sitting at a corner table across from J.P. McCall, Bryn grabbed the coffee pot and headed over, filled their cups. The place was quiet since the mid-afternoon lull was on. Things would pick up around four when the early diners would rally for the supper special. Tonight it was meatloaf, spiked with Bryn's own famous onion jam. Curled beneath the table, JP's retired service dog, Trooper, lifted his head and acknowledged Bryn with a doggy smile. She smiled back. Thanks, Cord said, and JP nodded in agreement. Cord was married, but JP was available and a real catch by anybody's standards. Like Cord, he was successful, smart, and sexy as hell. Nice. Oh, yes. J.P. McCall was a prize. A war hero, no less, with a sense of humor and a legendary investment portfolio. Oh, my God. I love these details. That's like, (laughs) this is dreamy. I know. Women fell all over him, much to his delight, but so far he'd remained single. Bryn liked J.P., just as she liked Cord, but there was no spark between them. No chemistry whatsoever, which was a bummer since she might have had a shot otherwise. Bryn was a pragmatic woman, and she was aware that, with her dark blue eyes, naturally silver blonde hair, and decent figure, she turned heads. Her appearance had been an asset in some ways, but she learned early that pretty girls had problems of their own. Boys and later men hesitated to ask them out, lest they be rejected. She'd been popular in high school, a varsity cheerleader, proficient at softball and soccer, a star player in the drama club, and she'd gotten good grades, too. Senior year, she'd been prom queen. Awkward, since she really hadn't had a date. By then, Eli had dumped her for Reba Shannon. Even after all these years, Bryn felt a pang at the memory. She put on a... When they said decent, she said decent physique or something. A decent figure. Just look at my that, body right now. That just means <laughs> like... decent figure. I know. <laughs> yeah. It's decent. And then she's like, she was a star athlete and amazing and blah, 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 blah. Used to be. I know, but yeah. I mean, she's on the front of this book. I think it's a decent figure. Oh, oh, I was, when I hear decent figure, I, I know. feel like you're being like, like if you, like I was joking, me, like <laughs> I had a bomb ass figure in my early twenties and now I've got a decent, right. A decent I have a decent bod. figure. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little, you know, snuggly, but anyways, she'd put on, <laughs> she'd put on a good front. I have a taco bod. <laughs> I don't think Bryn does. No, Bryn does not. She'd put on a good front that long night ago, back to when Eli had dumped her, kept her chin up and her shoulders back, but once she was home in the privacy of her bedroom, still clad in the lovely lacy dress her mother had made with such care, she'd flung herself down on her bed and ugly cried until her mascara ran and her whole face was puffy. Watching Eli and Reba dance together had crushed her. 
Things were better when she went away to college, at least when it came to the dating scene. At Northwestern, she'd been a very small fish in a very large pond. Sheltered and naive, gently raised in painted Pony Creek, Montana, she'd been homesick and totally overwhelmed during her freshman year. Guys asked her out, though. They took her to parties and football games, dances and concerts, movies and festivals, and with few exceptions, they expected sex in return. Immediately. No getting to know each other, no taking the time to become friends, let alone build a relationship. That kind of slam-bam-thank-you-ma'am approach had come as a shock to Bryn, though of course she'd known it was a thing. Sure, she'd grown up in a podunk town and she'd still been a virgin at the time, but plenty of the kids she'd gone to high school with had indulged. Two of her friends had been pregnant on graduation day. But in college, sex wasn't an option, it seemed to Bryn. It was a given. She hadn't been a prude, but she hadn't been a pushover either. In her mind, there was sex and there was love making. <laughs> That's Bryn. <laughs> That's Bryn is the opposite from me in college. <laughs> I suddenly can't relate to Bryn. <laughs> like, listen to this sentence. Sex had its place, she knew, but it wasn't currency to be exchanged for pizza and beer or an invitation to a party. Is that a real, like, say, someone on the line? Yeah. This book is attacking you. I know. <laughs> this is, I'm personally <laughs> aggrieved by this book. What the fuck? Someone should have told me that they didn't train, trade sex for beer. <laughs> terrible. Although, back to my previous comments that about the woman who was arrested for prostitution in a <laughs> Mexican food parking lot. Um, uh, in a sting nachos. operation and yeah. she's still leaning the window and asked for her nachos <laughs> and my comment to that was like well I've had sex for nothing so if pizza or nachos came at the end of it that sounds great all right so back to the book soon enough word had gotten out around campus that Bryn Bailey didn't put out if she went out with a guy it was Dutch treat no exceptions and no hanky panky after college, Bryn had moved from Chicago to Boston and made a life for herself, working in various high-end galleries, first in sales and eventually in management. She'd squeezed in personal artwork, mainly abstract acrylics, with diversions into watercolor landscapes, animals, and birds whenever she'd had the rare combination of time and inspiration. And then there had been Clayton. Clay. She didn't want to think about him, especially not in the middle of a work day, so she shifted her attention back to Cord and J.P., She'd gone to school with them from kindergarten right on through high school, and they were good friends, the kind of friends a person could depend on in the best of times and the worst. She refilled their coffee cups. You guys have a lot of leisure time, she teased. Since there were no other customers in the cafe at the moment, she decided to chat a little. Cord trained horses, and he was world-renowned for his ability to establish a rapport with even the most troubled animal. JP had been injured in Afghanistan years before and had parlayed a modest government settlement into a fortune. JP looked around, taking in the empty tables and, and unoccupied seats at the counter. So do you, he said. Bryn made a face, then laughed. Want to sit down, Cord asked. No thanks, she replied. She had a personal rule. She didn't sit with customers, even when the eatery was nearly empty and the invitation came from two of her oldest friends. I'm on duty. JP saluted, the smartass. Just then, the number one vehicle from the sheriff's department whipped into the parking spot next to JP's fancy rig. It was a massive SUV, dark green under sprays of mud, tricked out with a top-of-the-line gear and emblazoned with insignia. Bryn felt a lurch in the pit of her stomach. Even after all this time, he still got to her, especially when the encounter was unexpected. And she figured she ought to be over it by now, since they weren't kids anymore. Nevertheless, there it was. She watched as Eli got out of the rig, shut the door behind him, and headed for the entrance. He was easy on the eyes, especially in that uniform. But Bryn had other rules. Besides the one about not sitting down with customers, she didn't date cops. 
Not anymore. She was a law-abiding citizen and all that, but cops, like firefighters, she didn't date them either, were in almost constant danger, even in places like Painted Pony Creek, Montana. Back in Boston, she'd had friends in law enforcement, before and after she'd fallen in love with a policeman. She'd seen too many marriages, break under the stress the job naturally entailed, visited too many hospital rooms, and attended too many funerals. To Bryn, loving a cop meant being afraid 24-7. And if there was one thing Bryn Bailey didn't need in her life, it was fear. The little bell over the door jingled merrily as Eli came in from the cold. Trooper crawled out from under the table and went tail wagging to greet the new the newcomer. Eli smiled and bent to ruffle the dog's ears, murmuring a greeting. According to his sisters, Sarah, his oh, it says sisters. According to his sister Sarah, who was Bryn's friend, he'd recently adopted a dog of his own and named him Festus after a character on that western chestnut Gunsmoke. Oh, yep. Gunsmoke? What's a chestnut? Is it like a name for an Old West show? I don't know. All right. I just know Gunsmoke, so I was like giving a, Just giving a little shout out? Just giving a shout out. My grandma watches a lot of Gunsmoke. A lot of racial slurs and... Yeah, those uh, Old Wests. It's a little inappropriate. I get uncomfortable, <laughs> like, especially when it gets a little rapey. I'm like, our game uh, grandma. I want to go fix a sandwich. Yep. Coffee, Bryn asked automatically. She wasn't abrupt around Eli Garrett, just strangely careful. Sure, Eli said, thanks. Bryn wondered if he ever thought about their history, if he regretted dumping her as gracelessly as he had. Probably not, she decided. To him, high school was a distant memory, water under the bridge. Bryn didn't dwell on the old days herself, of course. But sometimes, recollections of losing Eli to another girl, especially Reba Shannon, ambushed her. I can't wait till we meet Reba. I can't wait. When that happened... burn her house down. Fucking bitch. When that happened, she had to remind herself that that was then and this is now. She and Eli, once so close, were more acquaintances now. Resolved to keep her cool, she went back behind the counter for a clean cup and saucer, grateful to have some things to do, even though the task took less than a minute. Eli was seated and reading the menu when Bryn set the cup down in front of him and poured coffee. What can I get you, Bryn inquired lightly. It was what she said to everyone, nothing special. Is the grill off, Eli asked without looking up from the menu. I can fire it up, Bryn replied. What'll it be? Burger with everything and an order of curly fries, came the answer. Bryn turned quickly and headed for the kitchen. Missed lunch, she heard Eli explaining to his friends. I could eat the north end of a southbound skunk. Well. Is that a butthole? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) There's some anal glands. (laughs) There's some some leakage. Bryn rolled her eyes. That's hungry. Amused (laughs) by the colorful, if hackneyed, description. Men, especially Montana men. In the privacy of the kitchen, Bryn set to work. The fry cook was at the dentist and would be back in time for the evening rush. Bryn listened to the low rumble of... this. So this part's super descriptive. I love, like, just her cooking. Um, it just gives you this beautiful... Well, for me, this, like, beautiful imagery of it. Bryn listened to the low rumble of male voices as she turned the dial on the grill to a medium high, washed her hands, and gathered the makings of a deluxe burger. A thick meat patty from the fridge, then a bowl of sliced onion, a plump tomato, a block of cheese, a slab of bacon. One of the three hunks started up the jukebox. Charlie Daniels fiddled his way into The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and Bryn tapped one foot to the rhythm as the burger sizzled on the grill in front of her. The song was an oldie, but it was still a popular choice among the patrons of Bailey's, along with a lot of other golden relics. She added a slice of cheese to the burger, dropped the fries into the basket, and lowered them into the bubbling oil, and, against her better judgment, let her thoughts drift back to her time in Boston. And Clayton. Clayton Clay Nichols, a detective with the robbery division of Boston PD. There it is. 
Bryn had met Clay when the gallery she managed had been robbed, tall and muscular with sandy-colored hair and a truly disarming smile. He'd caught her at... Do you think that Bryn meets anyone who's not a hunk? I don't... I think Bryn is, like, that girl that, like... Just draws hunks in? Just draws the hunks, because she's like, I don't really need you, uh, you got a decent bod. I got a decent bod. (laughs) And then they're like, oh, who is this? And also, she doesn't fuck for nachos, so... Uh, That that also feels like a personal... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, not at you. I was making the joke at the prostitution sting gal. Not you. Okay, (laughs) Damn it. Okay. He'd caught her attention in that first moment they cheered and held on to it long after the reports were filed and the investigation had been successfully closed. Like museums, art galleries were usually targeted by very sophisticated thieves, familiar with state-of-the-art security systems and patient enough to plan their heists for months, if not years, before making a move. In this case, the perps were young, inexperienced, and impulsive. The pair had been identified and tracked down within a few hours. Balaclava's notwithstanding... Caught on camera as they lugged armloads of paintings out the back way and piled them, Bryn still winced at the memory, into a rusted-out van with its door open and its license plate clearly visible. The plate would have led to an arrest all by itself, but these two, like most petty criminals, were a few trillion gray cells short of a brain. They'd yanked off their balaclavas in plain sight of the security camera above the back door, high-fived each other in jubilant self-congratulation. Clay and his team had had them in cuffs before the sun went down. The stolen artworks had been recovered, expertly restored to their former glory, and returned to the gallery walls. Of course, Bryn had been relieved and grateful, and when Clay called three days later after the incident to ask her out, she'd said yes without hesitation. They'd gone for a coffee on their first date and talked for hours. Bryn had told Clay all about growing up in Painted Pony Creek, Montana, and Clay, a lifelong citizen of Boston, had told her about his career. He'd been born to be a cop, he'd said, followed in the footsteps of footsteps of his father, great grand sorry, father, grandfather, and great grandfather. He was recently divorced, he said, with two children, a boy and a girl. Red flag. Red flag. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That was not coach, by the way. That was like what? Well, I knew it was coming, but Holy shit, that's so red flag. Well, and also, okay, I don't want to talk shit about Clay yet, but Or I'm, divorce. Our divorce or kids, but I do want to say that if you're that great of a fucking detective, remember how there's that documentary on Netflix about that Boston, um, the heist, heist. and then it's been kind of swept under the rug, but not entirely, but where are those art pieces, Clay? Yeah, Clay. Come on, Clay. Clay Nichols. Clay Nichols. If that even is your real name. Your ex-wife and your stupid kids. Okay, okay, sorry. No, not saying he has stupid kids. It's not what I was saying. But they might be stupid. We're only on chapter one. (laughs) We don't know. I'm just saying that red flag, red flag, red flag. He didn't pick up those heists. (laughs) He's feeding her dreams that he'll never fulfill. Okay. The marriage had been solid for a long time, but the stresses and strains of his job had worn him and his wife down. Red flag. Finally, there had he's like, I'm a cop. I'm always going to be a cop. All of my family are cops. I'm never going to stop being a cop. And it broke up my last relationship, but I really like you. You want to be in a new relationship. And I'm going to save some art pieces, but not the most important ones. Sorry, I'm upset about the art. <laughs> Finally, there had been Harboring nothing feelings. left beside their mutual love for the kids, and they'd sadly agreed to call it quits. Bryn closed her eyes at the memory of that long-ago sunlit afternoon on the patio of a cafe near the gallery. She'd fallen for Clay somewhere between meeting him on the agreed street corner and the final Cafe Americano long after the sunset. Oh. 
More di- that's because she's all hopped up on caffeine. She didn't know what she was agreeing to. Okay, well, I'm just saying it's kind of romantic. More dates followed. Dinner, movies, concert, the usual things. Unlike the college boys and entry-level executives she dated previously. That's just a burn on entry-level execs, <laughs> by the way. Clay didn't expect sex from the get-go. He'd wooed her, like actually wooed her, the old-fashioned way, with flowers, phone calls, handwritten notes and the like, and when she'd talk, he'd listened. Instead of simply waiting for her to shut up so he could speak the way the others had done. I'm a little angry at Clay just in general, so I'm going to just say he was gaslighting her. (laughs) (laughs) He was listening for all the things he could use in the future against her. How can I make all of your friends and family turn against you? (laughs) A year later, Bryn moved in with Clay. Gradually, she got to know his children, Davy and Maddie, Aww, and come to love them almost as deeply as if she'd given birth to them herself. Clay's ex-wife, Heather, had been friendly enough on the rare occasions when she and Bryn had encountered each other. Family birthday parties for the kids, brief vacations, picking them up or dropping them off after their weekend with their father. Back then, Bryn's mom and dad were still living in Painted Pony Creek and running the family business. I'd be so mad if I had to say Painted Pony Creek as the name of my town every time. I'm from Painted Pony Creek, Montana. I want to go to this place. I think it's fake. Well, we're going to make one up. (laughs) Sorry, Bryn and Eli, if it's not. And as soon as their daughter had given... um, Wait, sorry. We're still living in Painted Pony Creek and running their family business. And as soon as their daughter had given up her apartment to share Clay's larger one, they'd started asking when she intended to bring her boyfriend out west for a visit. Naturally, they wanted to meet him, size him up as a potential son-in-law. Although they never said so outright, Bran had known her parents were bothered by the fact that Clay was, one, divorced, and two, a cop, with all the dangers and other drawbacks of the job. Bryn and Clay hadn't really discussed marriage at that point. Being together had been enough. Bryn's days had been full between her work at the gallery, which she loved, and her own art. Most evenings, Clay was home, and they talked, read, cooked together, and made love. Sweet, vibrant love. Oh, Gross cat. he was gaslighting her. The folks at home had begun to ask pointed questions during their weekly phone calls. Bryn loved her mom and dad and hadn't blamed them for wondering where her relationship with Clay was headed. She was an only child after all. No, oh, there it is. Is this Mike, Mike and Mary Fix? <laughs> <laughs> but, but she'd avoided direct answers. As wonderful as Mike and Al... Oh, it is Mike. As wonderful as Mike and Alice Bailey were, they'd been somewhat too eager to see Bryn married, settled, and producing grandchildren. Alice, not surprisingly, had been the one most invested in that dream. Clippings had begun to arrive in the mail. Bryn's mom had never got... This is Mike and Mary. Bryn's mom had never gotten the hang of email. Images of bridal gowns, exquisite floral displays, glamorous venues ranging from mountaintops (laughs) to European castles, towering (laughs) cakes fit for a Windsor wedding. This is like when your mom sent you the article on to- or the recipes for tofu, like what you can make with tofu. Yeah, yeah, tofu. <laughs> where for those of you who are following our last episode is where Dave works. Yes, is that tofu? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bryn right. had barely registered those pictures at first, but she'd stuff them into a drawer instead of tossing them. They'd accumulated over the weeks and months, and they'd become harder to ignore. Then Heather, Clay's ex, a trust fund baby had suddenly married her personal trainer, temporarily transferred full custody of their children to Clay, and dropped the kids off at the apartment to set out on a six-week world tour with her new husband. Bryn had been thrilled to have Davy and Maddie around full-time. In those six weeks, she'd played mom and delighted in every aspect of the role. She'd taken them to school, picked them up afterward, brought them to the gallery where they remained until quitting time. Clay was pleased with the situation, too. He was an excellent father and sorely missed his children when they weren't around. But, although Bryn hadn't realized it then, something inside him had shifted when Heather remarried. It was a subtle change, but it turned out to be monumental. 
uh, momentous. Upon her return from the whirlwind wedding, I mean, sorry, honeymoon, Heather greeted her son and daughter with tears and hugs. But as she confided to Clay and Bryn, she and her bridegroom needed, quote unquote, us time, time to get used to being a married couple. Would Clay mind keeping the children just a little while longer? She would see them regularly, of course, but she just wasn't ready to be both a wife and a mother just yet. Oh, no. Again. Clay had agreed, though he insisted on a new custody agreement, and Heather had gone along with the plan. The kids who adored their father had been delighted, and Bryn had been too. Clay, too, had been glad to keep the kids, but he'd seemed oddly embittered all of a sudden regarding Heather's new marriage. He scoffed when Davy and Maddie came home after a brief visit with their mother and showed him pictures of the places they'd visited and the things they'd done together as a family. He'd begun to refer to the new husband as a gym monkey and a mope, the latter being cop slang for a loser. Also, the new husband's name is Jeffrey, with a G. It's in quotes. And it wasn't like Clay to be so petty. Slowly, so slowly that Bryn hardly noticed, things began to go wrong between her and Clay. He was often short with her, and he began to work longer and longer hours. Bryn busied herself with her job, her art, and the children, and told herself to be patient with Clay. His job was difficult, not to mention dangerous, and the police had recently been under fire in the media. The first crack in the relationship occurred when Clay's partner was shot and nearly killed. Then she and Clay had, uh, then she and Clay had stopped at a convenience store to buy fountain drinks, and he interrupted a holdup. Clay had wrestled the gun from the robber's hand, and a second bullet had missed him by inches. He'd taken the incident in stride. This is what it is to be a cop, he'd said. But Bryn, despite previous exposure to the high cost the job too often involved, had been deeply shaken. Before Clay's partner shooting, she'd been one step removed from the realities. Afterwards, she'd started having nightmares, fretting when Clay Clay came home late. Impatient, he'd started to call her clingy, and that simple word had wounded Bren almost as badly as what happened next. Where she'd wondered was the line between where she'd wondered, sorry, was the line between understandably concerned and clingy. Gaslighting, one hundred percent. And what exactly had happened next? Jeffrey with a G, A.K.M. the Gym Monkey, had showed up at the gallery in a state demanding to see Bryn right now. She'd been busy with the client and asked her assistant to take Jeffrey to her office, give him a glass of water, try to calm him down. She'd be with him as soon as possible. Jeffrey was not having it. He made a scene and Bryn had been forced to move to plan B. Her assistant took over the clients and she half dragged, half cajoled Heather's blathering husband out of the main gallery, along the hallway and into her usually quiet office. That's why I don't take pre-workout. Listen to what Jeffrey's wearing. Jeffrey, clad in spandex shorts, a skimpy muscle shirt, and a pair of very expensive trainers. Yes. <laughs> Jeffrey with the G. Jeffrey with the G, the, the personal trainer who married a client right away and then went around the country for six weeks and then said, ew, we cannot have your kids back. Yeah. Bill Rose. Nobody likes Jeffrey with the G. Um, and his pre-workout crap. He sank into a chair and began to weep loudly with plenty of sniffles and snot. Bryn handed him a box of tissues, took a bottle of water from her private mini fridge, and gave it to him with a one-word command, drink. He drank copiously. The torrent subsided a little, though he was flushed. What is it? Bryn asked, annoyed and oddly jittery. A part of her knew it was coming, though she couldn't bring herself to acknowledge it just yet. Jeffrey took care of that little problem. They're cheating, he blurted. Heather and Clay, I mean. The core of Bryn's being shifted on its axis. She collapsed into the chair behind her desk and began grasping at the proverbial straws. No, she said, they can't be. 
They can't be cheating because I will die if they are, because I love Clay Nichols too much to lose him. They can't be cheating because that will be the end and I will probably never see those children again. They are, Jeffrey insisted gruffly, fiddling with his smartphone and then thrusting it at Bryn. Her hands trembled as she took it. The first image, Clay and Heather, half-dressed and kissing so deeply that they might have been trying to swallow each other, struck Bryn like the engine of a runaway freight train. Scroll, Jeffrey said. She did. The pictures were graphic and undeniably recent. The small bullet-shaped tattoo on the back of Clay's right shoulder commemorating his near-death experience at the convenience store was only a few weeks old. Ah, how did Clay. you how did you get these Bryn asked bleakly wondering even as she spoke why that mattered nanny cam Jeffrey replied and that was it the proverbial proverbial straw that broke the camel's back Bryn Bailey decided never to date another cop it was too damn risky This podcast is in no way endorsed by number one New York Times bestselling author Linda Lale Miller or the book or her book Country Proud or Harlequin romance books, novels, all of the things. Nobody's endorsing us for the record. We are just deep fangirls and have a deep love for romance and rom-coms.